Revelation chapter number 3. Most of us will be familiar with that passage of Scripture, and uh, I'm probably not going to tell you anything new, but I hope what I tell you will help you tonight. Uh, We are living in a Laodicean day, and I, I think anybody that will honestly and earnestly examine society and examine the church uh, we'll see that. You know, the Laodicean condition was not a, uh, a marked quality of the world. The world's always been like that. But the Laodicean condition is a marked quality of the church in the last days. And uh, if it's a marked quality of the church, then it's a marked quality of the Christian. Because our churches are what our Christians are. Wall Ridge Baptist Church is what it is because the people that are a part of it. And that goes for the pastor and everyone in the pew. Uh, if we're a friendly church, it's because the people choose to be friendly. If we're a growing church, it's because the people choose to be growing. We choose to invite people and encourage people to come. You know that each and every one of us in our public capacity are the greatest evangelistic tool that Walridge Baptist Church has. Uh, I don't just mean in the sense of organized uh, door knocking or something where we, you know, splash the church name on it and say this is who we are and where we're from and what we do. Uh, but the people that we know day in and day out, if we'll make a particular effort to encourage those people to come to church, some of you say, well, you know, preacher, I tried that once and it didn't work. Uh, well, if, if once is all you tried it, it ain't no wonder it didn't work. Amen? It takes a lot more than that. But you'll find if you'll make it a habit to do that, uh, that you'll reach some people and you'll help some people. And so a church is what its people are. And uh, the Laodicean church, and it was a real literal church uh, that John was writing this to, uh, but also it is picturing uh, these last days of the church that we live in. Um, If they were Laodicean, or if they were the way that God describes them, and I believe they were, it's because the people within them were. So really, when we ask ourselves, is our church Laodicean, we need to ask ourselves, are we Laodicean? And that's where it begins. Just as revival begins with the individual examining himself, uh, so the honesty concerning our spiritual condition is the same way. Uh, I want to read tonight just a few verses in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. The Word of God says this, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art poor, thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith, under the churches. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time. 
Thank you for your word. I pray that you'd bless it to the hearts of your people, that you would convict us, Lord, and challenge us and change us. Lord, when we leave here, we'd not be the same people that we were when we came in. But God, that you'd do a work in us that we'd not soon forget. Lord, we love you tonight. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, there's a lot of ways you could divide this passage, but I want us to basically look at two thoughts tonight. We're going to say a few words about each of them. I want you to notice, first off, the condemnation that the Lord makes of the church at Laodicea. Uh, there's probably not another church, in fact, I'd say unequivocally, that there's not another church uh, in the seven churches to whom letters are written that has such a scathing condemnation as the Lord gives to the Laodicean church. And it's not necessarily the kind of condemnation we would expect for it to be. Uh, The Lord doesn't point out any uh, blatant and open idolatry, as it were. The Lord doesn't say that they were caught up in sins of immorality. The Lord doesn't say uh, that they uh, had turned their back on God in a public way and that they were reprobates and apostates and heretics. And yet God says about the Laodicean church something that He doesn't say about the rest of them, that literally they make him sick to his stomach. Now, what is it that God could say about the Laodicean church? What are the qualities of the Laodicean church that literally turn God's stomach? That's not a pleasant thought for us. You know that? To think that that us and our life and our actions could literally make God sick when he beholds. And I know that's not popular preaching. I know you're probably not going to hear it uh, preached from the big arena churches, but... The Word of God tells us, nonetheless, that there are some things that we can have in our life that literally turn the stomach of God. And we see about three or four marks of the Laodicean church. And we see this in the church today. But the thing that troubles me more than seeing it in the church, quote-unquote, is the fact that we see it so often in Christians. We see it in their lives and people that we know and that we love and people that once were on fire for the Lord that no longer are. So I want us to take a few moments and I want us to look at the condemnation that the Lord makes. And what are some qualities or traits of a Laodicean Christian? Well, I'd say first off, the spirit of mediocrity is a trait of a Laodicean Christian. Look what it says in verse 15. The Lord says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Mediocrity. Isn't that really what it is? Mediocrity. Not on fire for the Lord, but not necessarily cold to the Lord. Just somewhere in the middle. I was in a service one time, and a preacher preached on this, and he did something, a very interesting exercise. And uh, I don't know that I've ever really had liberty to do it, at least not the way he did it. But he had everyone pull out a piece of paper and write down. Maybe I have done it and don't remember it. I don't know. But had everyone write down a number from 1 to 10 that they believe about their Christian life. There's very few people that would be bold enough to put a 10 on that paper. But there's very few people that'd be honest enough to put a one on that paper. Most people would put themselves somewhere between six and eight, if I had to guess. Oh, there might be a few that are really humble that give themselves a five. But you see, where we'd place ourselves in our own estimation of our Christian walk is usually somewhere right smack dab in the middle. But God says here that you'd be better off to be a one than to be a five or a six. You'd be better off to be cold than to be lukewarm. I'd say we live in a day of mediocrity. Uh, most people that are involved in the church today, they, they are, most of them are not living in, in open, unashamed sin. When I, when I say most of the people, I mean our stripe of church, our type of church. 
I mean, the, the old-fashioned churches that still have a little bit of conviction about them and still preach from the Word of God. Most people that go to those churches on a regular basis, they're not living in open immorality. Most of them, they're not going down to the bar and getting drunk. Or if they are, they're going to a different one than the pastor goes to because I don't never see you there. Amen? It's not that we're living in blatant and open immorality. It's just we're not doing what we could be doing. That's a mark of the last days. The fact that we would be unmoved by our condition and by our state. I'd say most of us, if we were to label our Christianity, we'd label it mediocre. God says, that makes me sick. It makes me sick that you don't care enough for me to be hot, but you don't even care enough for yourself to be cold. You're just apathetic and lazy and unmoved by the Word of God. And he says, you're mediocre, I'll not stand for it. So I think a spirit of mediocrity is one of the things. But then I think a spirit of apathy is one of the things. Look what it says there in verse number 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. I chose the word apathy. We could have used a number of words there. But the comfort and ease of the Christian life. You know, the truth of the matter is this. We live in the most comfortable days that humanity has ever experienced. We think just because the stock market takes a little bit of a dip, we think just because interest rates go up a little bit, boy, we're really hurting, we're really suffering. But the truth of the matter is we live in the most comfortable days we've ever lived in. We, we can literally turn on a television or a computer or pull a phone out of our pocket and be entirely across the world and have wealths of information. There's not a single job, it seems, to do in the home, but what there's some kind of gadget and mechanism and machine to do it. Most young people today grow up never knowing what real hard work is. They think hard work is to flip a hamburger or they think hard work is to talk on a headset and a telephone and help somebody with their computer. We live in comfortable days. Now you say, preacher, is that wrong? No, that's not wrong. It's not wrong until that comfort lulls us to a spiritual sleep. And we say like the Laodicean Christians did, I have need of nothing. I have need of nothing. You look through history and you'll find that prosperity has always been an enemy of revival. And as long as people are settled, they're stagnant. Something has to move them. And in the days that we live in, the problem is we can't be moved because we've got too many buffer zones to be moved. Most of us don't know what a life of real faith is. We know where our next meal and our next paycheck is coming from. We know where we're going to pillow our head at night. Most of us would, I mean, we would, we would whine and moan and cry from here throughout all of eternity if we had to live like our Lord did and have no place to lay our heads. We live in a day of comfort. And it's not a sin to be comfortable, but it is a sin when in that comfort we believe we have everything we need. You know, you can have all your ducks in the row. You can have all of the, you can have the retirement plan. You can have every red cent you'll ever need and still be in need of something. We have a need day in and day out of the presence and power of God. And the fact that we don't see that need is evidence that we're laid to sin. I think that's a third quality, and I think that's spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. Look at the next phrase. Look what it says there in verse number uh, 17. It says, And knowest not wasn't that it was wrong that they were rich and increased with goods and, and in a temporal sense they had need of nothing. But what was wrong was they knoweth not, they knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Spiritual blindness to the problems in our lives. This is the reason we don't see revival. 
is because we don't really see a need for revival. We really don't think sin's all that bad. We're really not 100% sure that our loved ones are, if they die they're gonna, and die without Christ, they're going to die and go to hell. Now, I'm being honest now. We have a head knowledge of it, but we don't have a heart knowledge of it because a heart knowledge of it would move us. One famous infidel said this, that if he believed what others believe about hell and about the Bible, he'd crawl all the way from New York to California on cut glass to reach his mother and a winner with the gospel. And most of us won't go across the street. Now, what does that mean except to say that we don't really believe what we say we believe? If someone was laid down hurt on a railroad track and someone came along and said there's a train coming and we did nothing to help them get out of the way and we did nothing to warn them and we did nothing to move them, the logical conclusion would be that we did not believe there was really a train coming. Well, that's the day that we live in. That's the Christianity that we live in. The fact that that we can sit under the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God and the moving of the Spirit of God and yet stay and remain unmoved by those things, that's a sign of the end times. But it's a sign of a Laodicean Christian. And that spiritual blindness is what's really going to do us in. Because until we see we have need of something, we're never going to ask for it. And if we won't ask for it, we won't get it. Until we see that there's a problem, we won't seek a solution. And until we recognize that things aren't right in our life, we won't try to get them right in our life. I see a fourth quality, and I couldn't really think of a cute word to use with this. So I'm just going to tell you what I see, and it's in verse 20. And it's the placement of Christ at the church of Laodicea. He says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. We see, and you've heard this a hundred thousand times, but if I can do anything, let me stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that in chapter number 1, we see him in the midst of the candlesticks. But all the way down in chapter number 3, we see him outside of a locked door. And that's the place that Christ occupies with most churches. But I'd go a little bit further. I'd say with most Christians, that's the place that he occupies. You see, we don't mind him being on the front lawn where the neighbors can see, but we don't want him in the house where he actually has a say in what goes on in our lives. We don't mind him being out as a lawn ornament and for people to walk by and say, hey, that person's a Christian but to actually give Him the reins and the government of our life and to let Him make decisions we're unwilling to do. Now, I'm telling you something tonight that you're either going to have to accept or not accept. And I I promise you right now, I'm not mad. I mean, I'm having a good time. I'm not upset. I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad at me. I'm a little mad at the devil. Amen. But I'm not mad at you and I'm not mad at me, but I'm just telling you some real stark realities that until we get a hold on this thing and get honest about it, nothing's going to change in our lives. We have to get to the place where we recognize that if Christ isn't on the throne, He's outside of the locked door. Those are the only two places He'll be. He'll be in the midst or He'll be outside. And the truth is, for most Christians, He's outside. For most Christians, He's outside. They don't mind Him being there. They like the reputation it gives them. In other words, they like the name Christian. It doesn't bother them for people to say they're a Christian They don't mind acting like they've got a little bit of religion, but to actually go whole hog and to actually give Christ their lives, they're unwilling to do. And that's a mark of a Laodicean Christian. It's a mark of a Laodicean church, of course. And, you know, we could stand here and preach about all them churches that have booted Christ out. But let me remind you of something. The churches didn't boot them out till the Christians booted them out. And those churches are in the condition that they're in, not necessarily because they were led from a pulpit into that. Some of them were. 
But some of them, it's because there was a coldness that gripped the hearts of the man in the pulpit and those in the pews. And that coldness pushed Christ on the outside to where he can't work and he can't move and he can't stir. God says, when I see you, I have to stand and look through the window to see these things about you. And he gives a stark condemnation against them. Now, we see also not the condemnation, but we also see the counsel that God gives. Well, okay, if this is true about us or true about me or true about you, what do we do about it? Well, God tells us what to do about it. Look down what it says in verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. I see two things in these verses. And the first thing I think we have to do is we have to repent. Now, repentance is still biblical. It's biblical to repent. It's biblical to acknowledge that you've sinned and done wrong and to ask God's forgiveness and to turn your back on that sin and to make your mind up that by God's grace and with His help you have no intention of committing it. I think we have to be careful sometimes. I think a lot of people are hesitant to repent because they're afraid they can't keep that promise to God that they'll never do it again. But I think that what repentance really is is making your mind up that if God will help you into the best of your ability, you have no intention of committing that sin again and you're not going to give any place to the devil in your life concerning it or make any provision for the flesh. I don't think we have to make God promises that we can't keep. I think that repentance is just what the very word means to turn your back on something. To say, God, you've marked that in my life. You've shown me it's wrong. You've shown me it's sin. So I agree with you. That's confession. I agree with you that it's sin. I'm going to make my mind up that I'm not going to live in that anymore. That's still biblical to do. And in fact, I'd say that's the only biblical way to, to approach the sin problem. You know, part of our problem in the day that we live in is we just we don't know what to do with sin. We're standing around at, uh, at Mildred Quinn's graveside and uh, me and Glenn and, and Brother Jim were talking and we're talking about sin. We're talking about how people used to deal with sin and people weeping and confessing and asking God's forgiveness. Those were days when God got things done. And we don't see it now today. We don't see God getting things done today because those things are missing. We've got this politeness and it's crept into our hearts and our souls and it's, and it's eating away at us like a cancer where we're willing to be lulled off into spiritual sleep as long as we don't have to break that politeness and acknowledge that we've sinned and we've messed up. I'm telling you, that'll bury you. It'll bury me. We have to get to the place where we acknowledge that and where we are willing to repent and turn from those things. It's still biblical to repent. And that's still the only way to deal with sin. I believe that repentance, I believe if it's been a public sin, it requires a public repentance. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to get up and apologize in front of a church, but I, I just tend to believe this, that a lot of times God's going to drag you to the altar over something that you've done openly before all men. Other things He may deal with you in the secretude of your heart. But I believe it's still biblical to repent, to turn from those things. I believe it's the only way to deal with it. So I think first off you've got to repent, but then... I see a second thing, and I've dealt with these out of order concerning our text for a reason that I'll not go into, but look what it says in verse number 18. I think we have to repent, but I think we have to request for some things. There's some things we have to ask God for. I don't believe we'll ask for them until we've repented. But after we've repented and after we've gotten right with God, at least gotten our heart right with God, and we want to get our life right with God, there's some things that we have to ask for. I want you to notice the first thing. The first thing we have to ask for is a true, genuine Christian experiential faith. 
It says in verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Well, when it says gold, it's not talking about gold in a literal sense, but gold as it does picture faith. The Bible says the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold, though it be tried with fire. And so what the Lord's saying is you need to ask God for a real, genuine, true, experiential Christian experience in faith. I don't mean to get saved afresh and anew. If you've been saved, that's the only time that you need to be saved. We know that. We don't have to go through the doctrine of eternal security. But what it means is this. Lord, I want a real walk with you. No more of this Sunday morning play religion. No more of this politeness. God, I want a real, genuine walk with you. I want the kind of walk that can stand the fires of persecution. I want the kind of walk that you know it's pure because it's been through some things. You have to ask for a true and genuine walk. You have to ask the Lord to help you to live a true and genuinely sanctified life. Look what it says. And white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Now, I know that we like to talk about the positional and practical aspects of these doctrines, and that's true. There is a positional and practical application of the doctrine of sanctification, as there is with anything. I know the Bible says, such were some of you, but now you are sanctified. And we are sanctified in Christ Jesus, not because of anything that we do, but because of who Jesus Christ is and we're in Him. But if you try to rob the Bible of the doctrine of practical sanctification, uh, then you're doing the Word of God a great disservice. You know what James said? He, he said, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double mind. He didn't, he didn't say, hope that one day God does. He said, you do it and do it now. And I think one of the things we have to ask God for is we have to ask God to help us to clean up our lives. We have to ask God to help us to fix this thing. And we have to take the proper steps to be willing to fix There are some things that we turn away from. And we can be real spiritual and talk about, well, you know, you've got to pray and ask God to take it away and, and plead with Him. And I understand that, and there is some truth to that. But sometimes I think we lean on that to try to avoid the responsibility that we have to take some practical steps to fix our lives, to do the things that God's called us and asked us to do. There are some things, church, that are right. And it's our responsibility to do the right thing. And there are some things that are wrong. And it's our responsibility to stay away from the wrong things. I know there's some things we have to ask God for help for. I'm not, I'm not denying that. And even in our text, they're asking God to give them this. I don't believe it's talking about positional sanctification because that's not something you have to ask for after you've been saved. That's something you have in Christ Jesus. This is a very practical thing. Ask God for a righteousness. And do the things that you need to do to exercise that righteousness. In other words, live right. And then I think an honesty is one of the things we have to ask God for. Look what it says at the end of the verse. It says, And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Boy, that's, that's very interesting language. Anoint. Uh, we know that the word anoint is often tied with the doctrine and idea and teaching of the Holy Spirit. And certainly the book of uh, 1 John calls him the unction, the anointing. And He is that anointing, that unction in our lives. And I believe that what's being said here is that we have to have an honesty about it, but then we have to ask the Holy Spirit of God to reveal things in our life that need to be removed. We've got to get honest about it. We've got to be truthful. If things aren't right, you have to admit they're not right. If, if you're anything less than, than hot and on fire for the Lord, you have to acknowledge that that's a problem. I'm not saying it'll be fixed tomorrow, and I'm not saying you'll never mess up, and I'm not saying you'll never grow cold or grow lukewarm again, 
But you certainly don't fix it by sitting around and saying, well, I, I know I'm in bad shape, but so's everyone else, but praise God we're forgiven. That doesn't change your life. I know that's true that we're forgiven. I know everybody's in a mess. But until we're willing to be honest that God expects more out of us, we're never going to change. And so I think an honesty is something we have to ask God for. Lord, help me to be honest about my life. And then once I've exhausted my honesty, I want the Holy Spirit of God to show me things that I may be unaware of because I'm spiritually blind to my needs and I need Him to show me. I need that unction, that anointing, that eye salve to open my eyes. So there's some things we have to request. And then finally, and I'm done, there's a response that we have to give. Look again at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. We have to respond to the Lord's voice. We have to respond to him. You know, I I think sometimes as a preacher, we I try to be so careful. I know other preachers that are this way. We don't want to drag people down an altar. We don't want to manipulate people. We don't want to pressure people. And we don't want people to make decisions just because of us. That sometimes I think we temper and weaken an invitation. And I think sometimes that's a bad thing. The reality is this. If God spoke to your heart tonight or any other night, you have a responsibility to speak to Him and to respond in obedience to Him. And I know we say if that means in the altar or in the pew, and it does mean that. If God gives you liberty to stay in a pew, that's fine. But in my experience, it seems like God's never okay with me staying in a pew when there's an altar to, to go to. But whatever it means for you, if God speaks to you, you don't just have the option to respond. You have the responsibility to respond. It's on you to do that. He won't drag you down. You have to make that decision. But understand this. When God speaks to you, if you don't respond in obedience, it's disobedience. And it's a hindrance to your spiritual walk. All that does is make the blindness deeper and the mediocrity more intense and the apathy more deadly. You've got to make that decision. But if the Lord's speaking to your heart, that tells you this. There's still hope. There's still hope. I believe that a Christian can get to a place where he's done so much harm to the name of Christ and he is so hard-hearted and will not repent and return that God will take him out of this world. But if God's touching on your heart, you're not to that place. God's trying to do something in you. And you have to be willing to. You've got to be willing to repent. You've got to be willing to request some things. And you've got to be willing to respond in obedience.